We're in Hebrews chapter 6 this morning, so please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 6, and we're in verse 1. On Wednesday night, we're going through the Bible, chapter by chapter and verse by verse, and this Wednesday, we're in Romans 6, so we'd like to invite you to that, and then on the weekends, we're going through the book of Hebrews. So let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for a new year. We thank you that your mercies are new every morning, and great is your faithfulness. We just desire that there would be a tremendous amount of growth in our lives this year, that we would come to understand who you are in a greater way, that we'd be used by you, that our lives would be filled uh, with fruit. So we thank you for these verses that we'll be looking at this morning. Pray that you would cause there to be clarity and just real clear teaching from your word and great application. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Growth is very gradual, but it's also powerful. A lot of times when you're watching your kids grow or your grandkids grow, you don't see it day after day, but then all of a sudden you're like, wow, you're two inches taller, you're three inches taller. We have a wall in our house, like many of you, where we have a piece of of sheet metal uh, that was made that's got one foot, two foot, and all the inch marks, and we mark the kids at their birthdays, and it's like, wow, you really did some growing this year, and I didn't realize it as we were traveling throughout the year. So it's very gradual, but it's also very powerful, and growth is very natural. I mean, when you think about your garden growing and plants growing and your grass growing. Remember that grass does grow in Colorado. Wouldn't know it this time of year, but it's just, it's very natural, but it's very beautiful. There's nothing like growth. When kids fail to grow, we have a phrase that has been coined in the medical community, and it's called failure to thrive. You know, it's the worst words that you want to hear as a mom or as a dad when you take your kid to the doctor's office, and and they're like, well, it looks like your child's not on the 98th percentile of growth, and so that means they may have failure to thrive. And in my opinion, it gets thrown out there pretty quick, but if there isn't growth over a period of time, it's a big deal, isn't it? And so when there's not growth uh, in our lives, it's very, very concerning. It becomes very serious. There's another phrase in regards to growth uh, that has been coined, and it's failure to launch. And that's when you have an adult who is in their 20s, 30s, 40s, and decides that living at home is a good idea for the rest of their life. Right? But that's something that we see taking place now today in, in our societies. Now, if there's good reason for it, praise the Lord. You know, that's, that's a, a blessing that needs to take place. But if there isn't good reason for it, it may be failure to launch, isn't it? Well, this morning in our study is we do see a group of believers that is failing to grow. They're not growing in their relationship with Christ. And they receive this exhortation to go on toward maturity to grow up, to grow deeper into the things of Christ. They've got a good foundation, but they need to now build upon that foundation. And so that's the challenge that's there for us this morning. We're going to cover the first 12 verses of Hebrews chapter 6. And there's the challenge to grow. So there's a challenge, and then there's a warning. And the warning and exhortation is to continue to trust in Christ. And then it ends with encouragement. So verse 1 of chapter 6. Therefore, leaving 
the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ. Of course, the word therefore takes us back to the prior paragraph in chapter 5, where this group had gotten to the place where they should be teachers. That's God's desire for us as we grow, is that we would be able to teach others. Not that everybody's a Bible teacher or a pastor or a missionary, but God wants us to be dispensers of truth, to be able to share truth with whoever we're around as we're learning the things of Christ. So this group, they ought to be teachers, but instead they're having to be retaught the basics. They're only able to digest milk when they should be eating meat. And so therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary things, the the word elementary means the ABCs, the rudimentary, the basics. It says it's time to leave the basic principles of Christ and grow up into maturity. If you're new in your relationship with the Lord, if you've received Christ in the, in the last few months, in the last few years, don't be condemned. Don't beat yourself up. You're learning the basics for the very first time, and that's a wonderful thing, and that's a powerful thing. This is addressing someone who's been in Christ 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, and they haven't moved past the very basic things. They're still on milk when they should be going to meet. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, we need to leave this discussion of elementary things. We need to now grow up. We've got to to move on and to move forward. And he says, let us go on to perfection. And this word perfection is translated also maturity. That's what it means. It's not that you're ever going to be perfect, that I'm ever going to be perfect, but that there should be growth in our lives. Church, I think this is a great message to start the new year because the new year does give us that point of reflection of as we look back into 2014, can we see growth in our lives spiritually? What's going to be different about 2015? Those are the things that are on our hearts and and our minds. And the New Year's resolutions oftentimes end in failure and greater condemnation. So we need to be looking at Christ and looking at how do we grow in Christ? How do we move forward in maturity? But if we're not growing, we tend to be drifting. And it's God's heart that we would grow. Every father... Every mother desires for their children to mature. Why it's two. He's two and a half. He does some darn cute things at two and a half. But if he's doing those same things at 16, we got a problem, don't we? He carries around his blanket and he loves to suck his two fingers. And man, I love it at two and a half. But if he's doing that at 16, we we really need to sit down and talk, don't we? And there's some things that just aren't so cute in our lives anymore. It's time to grow up. It's time to move forward on to maturity. And so what he's going to do before he takes us into these deeper things is he reviews the foundation briefly. He, He reviews what we need to be moving past from. And if you're new in Christ, these are great things to be learning. If you're discipling someone who's new in Christ, these are great things to be teaching. But ultimately, hopefully we're able to build on this foundation. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God. So he's saying, I don't want you to have to go back and relearn these ABCs and relay the foundation. Foundations have the purpose to build upon. A building's only as good as its foundation, but if there's only a foundation, something's missing. The foundation's there so the building can exist. And so God gives us this foundation so that there can be building upon it. So don't lay the foundation again of repentance from dead works. There's six things 
in this foundation. The first is repentance. Repentance from dead works. It's foundational in our relationship with the Lord that we're turning away from this concept that I can be saved by works. These works are dead. These works can't save me. These works can't bring me into right relationship with God. But this is what this Hebrew church is struggling with. They're being tempted as Jewish believers to go back under the law and to trust in their own works for salvation. So he's saying repentance from Dead works is a key part of our salvation. Jesus taught repentance. The disciples in the early church all taught repentance. And then repentance leads to faith towards God. Repentance in and of itself is not enough. It's turning from sin. It's turning from dead works to have faith towards God, trusting who he is and his promise of salvation. So the first is repentance. The second is faith. And the third is the doctrine of baptisms. And it's helpful to look up some of these words in the Greek language. If you enjoy doing that, this is a good one to look up. The Greek word that's translated baptism, because it's not the normal word that's used that we often translate into baptism. In fact, it's only used three times in the New Testament, and the other two times it's talking about ceremonial washing. So what's being discussed here is the fact that these Jewish believers need to understand the teaching about ceremonial washing, that they're no longer required by the law to go through all of these ceremonial cleansing. And this was a big deal for them. So this is very much tied into the struggle that they're having. Is it important to know the doctrine of baptisms outside of this? Absolutely, but it's referring to the ceremonial washings. What are the baptisms mentioned in Scripture? Well, we find John's baptism. That's referred to a lot in the New Testament. And speaking of John the Baptist, he baptized people in the name of repentance that they would be looking forward to a Messiah. There's water baptism that we practice here at RMC. Most Christian churches do. And it speaks of what took place when we received Christ as our Savior. That we're buried with Christ and we're risen in newness of life. It's already happened. It's an outward symbol to connect that we're buried with Christ and risen in newness of life. We don't get baptized to be saved. We get baptized to make that public declaration of our faith. The next that we see is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit coming upon us to be able to live out the Christian life. Another key in this foundation is the laying on of hands. Now, that can kind of freak some people out. You come up to receive prayer, you ask someone to pray for you, and they put their hand on your shoulder, and you're like, hey, no thanks. No hand on the shoulder. Especially if you're a handshake person. You know, you're like, this is about as close as I get right here. Bubble, we're in America, personal space. So what is this laying on of hands, and what do we see it in the New Testament? is when Timothy was being called into ministry, Paul prayed for him with the laying on of hands, and the scripture tells us he received a spiritual gift. Sometimes God blesses spiritual gift through calling through the laying on of hands. We also do see the infilling of the Holy Spirit happening in the New Testament as there's prayer through laying on of hands. We find in James chapter 5, if you're sick, to call for the elders of the church. You can come forward. We have the pastors available to pray after service and ask that they would anoint you with oil and praying that God would grant healing. And sometimes he gives that physical healing and sometimes he saves that healing until we go home to, to be with the Lord. But this is an important thing to know and, and understand. 
And so the fifth thing that we see is the resurrection of the dead. This is a foundational thing that we should know and, and understand that Christ rose from the dead as the first fruits, meaning he's the example of the resurrection to come for us, the type of glorified body he had, we also will receive. But then also to understand with the resurrection of the dead that all will rise. It's a determination of location of heaven or hell. Some will rise to everlasting life and some will rise to everlasting contempt. How are the two groups decided? Jesus decides based on those who know and trust him for salvation. And the last thing that's important in our foundation is eternal judgment. This is something that believers should know and and understand is why does God send people to hell? And this is one that has become very controversial A pastor by the name of Rod Bell, he pastored a church in Michigan. He wrote a book called Love Wins Out where he really challenged the concept and the teaching of hell and how could a loving God send people to hell. What people don't know about that story is what happened after he read that book is the elders of his church asked him to no longer uh, be the pastor there because he was no longer teaching a biblical concept uh, of hell. He started that church. He was the founding pastor, and they asked him to no longer uh, be the pastor. He went on to say that he wanted to try to find a larger audience, so he was going to pursue TV show, which I guess Oprah Winfrey's network, I didn't know she has her own network, but she does, uh, decided to put him on with his own show. So he's starting his own show, The Rob Bell Show. But he's caused a lot of people to really grapple with this concept of hell. And can a loving God send, send people uh, to hell? And I don't mean this tongue-in-cheek, but <clears throat> I want you to think through this, is how would God be loving if he didn't send people to hell? Because do you think that it's just and loving from God if he's all-knowing, if he's all-loving, and he's all-powerful to not hold people accountable for evil? Now, this is one of the most difficult hypothetical situations, but you'd say one of your children were murdered in their growing up years in a very brutal way, and someone has the power to hold them accountable for their actions, and they didn't do it, how would that be loving? And God's the ultimate authority, isn't he? And how does he send people to hell? He sends people to hell as the last resort, as the last option. He tells us it's not his will that any would perish. He doesn't want anyone to go to hell. And to go to hell, you have to step over the bloody body of Jesus Christ. You have to step over his son Step on, step over, continually reject Jesus Christ. And it's the rejection of Jesus Christ that ultimately God confirms that decision. But it's not up to us to be able to take this concept out of the truth of Scripture. That's an authority that we can't take upon ourselves. This is what God says. This is how he determines heaven. This is how he determines hell. And to have an appropriate understanding of eternal judgment is part of this foundation. So those are the six things, but they're not the focus of our study. We're to now grow past these things. We're to have an understanding about them and then plug into more things. Verse three, and this we will do if God permits. So he says, we will go back and, and look at these things more if the Lord permits. In verse four, We'll read down through verse 6. For it's impossible for those who are once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, 
since they crucify for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. We're going to work our way through these verses because this is probably the most difficult section in the book of Hebrews. This is the crown jewel of difficulty, maybe one of the most difficult sections in all of scripture. And so we pray for clarity and appropriate understanding. And we do know this, that Satan knows the scriptures and he loves to twist it. Did you realize that? Satan is an expert on the scriptures and he will use it to try to deceive people and use it to try to lead people astray. How do we know this? When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4, he quoted scripture to Jesus. And I'll read to you. This is how Satan quoted scripture. Quotes from the Psalms. He shall give his angels charge over you. In their hands they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. Sounds pretty good. He's trying to get Jesus to jump off the pinnacle of the temple. The angels will will catch you. But he left out an important part of this verse where it says, he will keep you in all of your ways. The promise of God's protection is as you're walking in your normal ways, not as you're doing foolish and reckless things. And Jesus responded and said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. What do we find with Satan back in the Garden of Eden? As he tempted Eve, has God really said? He questioned and twisted scripture. Satan would love for you to hear these three verses and take it in a spirit of condemnation. Take it in a way of, well, you're struggling with sin. There's no way for you to come back to God. You wandered from the Lord. You've drifted. You're the prodigal. Don't even think about coming back because it's impossible for you to be renewed unto repentance. And Satan has done that to so many people. And that's why I think this is one of his favorite passages. He likes to take a section of scripture and then use it out of context and come out with the wrong meaning. When you're reading scripture, have you ever felt completely condemned? Anybody been there? Anybody would admit that this morning? I want you to examine that. Is that the spirit of God? Is it the spirit of God if you read the word and you feel condemned. There's a difference between condemnation and conviction. Conviction brings us back to Jesus Christ, closer to Jesus Christ. It gives hope in the situation and our struggle with sin. Condemnation drives us away from Jesus Christ and leaves us with this theology and understanding of God that he doesn't love you and he can't forgive you. So when you walk out of a Bible study or your own personal devotions with condemnation, you've come away with the wrong understanding. It may be that Satan has used the scripture against you and you've got to go, no, this isn't the spirit of God. The spirit of God's going to bring conviction is going to bring me closer to Jesus. So we first have to understand that Satan knows the scripture. He loves to twist it. He loves to bring condemnation. Let's work our way through this passage. First, we find in verse four that there is a genuine experience with God. They're enlightened. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They've become partakers of the Holy Spirit and they've tasted the good word and the powers of the age to come. So it's very descriptive of an experience with God. Then there's this, if they fall away. What what does it mean in the context of Hebrews to fall away? What's the struggle that the Hebrew church is having? 
It was trusting in their own works and rejecting the work of Jesus Christ. That's what falling away was for them, to go back under the law. Falling away in the context of Hebrews is not falling into sin or struggling. That happens and continues to happen in our lives. Their falling away was rejecting the work of Christ and trusting in their own works for salvation. Then that makes verse 6 come into view and to make sense. If I no longer trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ, I've gone back under the law, I'm trusting in my own works, then in essence, I'm causing Jesus Christ to be crucified again. I'm mocking the work of Jesus Christ. If I'm trusting in my own works, I'm mocking the finished work of Jesus Christ. And it's very subtle, isn't it? Going, well, you know, here's my little system of rules. I've got to do all of these things. And if I do all these things, I'm righteous before God. But that's not the message of the gospel. What makes us righteous before God? Trusting in the sufficient and finished work of Jesus Christ. And those works are a response of love, not a responsibility. But if I adopt this mindset, and you'll meet people like this that say, well, you know, you need to keep the Sabbath in a religious sense. You need to make sure that you eat kosher. You need to go back under the law. And it's going to be your works that save you. And that's what this Hebrew church was struggling with. That's what falling away would look like for them. The real purpose of verses 4, 5, and 6 is a warning and an exhortation to continue trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's what the Hebrew church is being tempted to drift away from. And this is an important warning for us to hear as well is the gospel needs to be trusted and believed in our lives continually. It's great that you trusted in the gospel 20 years ago, but are you trusting in the gospel today? Can you declare that Jesus is Lord, that you're trusting in his work, his finished work for salvation? Any day that we perish where we don't believe in Christ is not a place that I would want to be, and I don't think it's a place you want to be as well. This isn't complicated. It's simple faith continuing to trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's three primary views of verses 4, 5, and 6, and I want to give them to you so that you have them, that you can chew on them. The first view of this is that this is a completely hypothetical situation. Hypothetical meaning that it's not actually possible that somebody could fall away after they've tasted and they've partaked, and, and so It's just given to us in that way. And that view is pretty easy for me to dismiss pretty early on because I don't see anywhere in Scripture where God just plays the hypothetical game. His words are are purposeful, they're meaningful. He says, here it is. So pretty quickly, I think we can dismiss that. The other is that this is actual, that there's someone who's been born again, that tasted and enlightened and partaker, that means that they have been born again, and that someone then that, that falls away to the point of, leaving or losing their salvation. And then the last view is that this is apparent salvation, meaning that when they were enlightened and they tasted, is that they were around the things of God, but they didn't fully give themselves over to God. Some in generations past have called this a sham conversion, 
So they never really trusted in Christ as their Savior. And then over time, their falling away was evident of of the fact that they didn't truly give their heart and their life over to Jesus Christ. And this falls in line with the parable of the sower, where someone received the seed, which is the Word of God, and then when difficulty comes, there was no lasting fruit because they didn't truly give themselves over to God's Word. So I I lean towards that apparent view, that, that last view, that this does point to someone who is not truly given their heart and their life over to Jesus Christ. As I look at the scriptures of, in totality, as once you've given your heart and your life uh, to Jesus Christ in a genuine way, that Christ keeps us, that he finishes that good work that he started in us. But I don't want us to undermine the heart of what's being communicated here. Because I don't think this is given to us for us primarily to wrestle with these three views. It's given in a very practical sense of a real warning that says, you know what, it's important that you continue to trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Also, I want to try to bring clarity before we go on, is what does the whole scripture teach about coming to God and coming back to God? Because verse 6, you know, it talks about if they've fallen away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. So who can come, come back to the Lord? And we find Peter that he fell in sin, didn't he? And there's a difference between falling into sin and failure and, and falling away. But Peter, he, he fell in a great way. And did Jesus go to Peter and say, well, sorry, Peter, you're lost forever. It's impossible for you to be renewed under repentance. Jesus went and died for Peter on the cross, rose again and restored him. We know the prodigal. Did the father welcome the prodigal back? Absolutely. And so this morning, if you are starting this new year and you say, you know what, I've fallen away from the Lord, is it possible for me to return? As you look at the totality of Scripture, absolutely yes. You come back this morning, and God will be faithful to receive you back. But if you're here this morning and you hear God's invitation to return, but you say, I don't want to, or you're unwilling for some reason, then this may be for you. Because there does come a point where someone can blaspheme the Spirit of God to a point where God says, okay, I confirm your decision. It's clear that you don't want Jesus Christ. Just like it's important to continue trusting in the gospel, it's important to say yes to Jesus and coming back to him. You don't want to harden your heart. You don't want to continue to walk in a rebellious state. It's important this morning if you hear his voice and you've never been saved to trust in Jesus Christ as your savior because only God knows where that line is. Only he knows where he says, okay, you've hardened your heart to the point now where I'm going to conf- uh, confirm that decision. Well, now that that's clear as mud, let's go on to verse 7. <laughs> For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes up and bears herbs useful for those by whom it's cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned up. So this goes along with the view of apparent salvation, because if there's genuine salvation that's going to result in fruit, the illustration is the rain. The rain comes upon the earth and it produces herbs that are useful, that are a blessing from the Lord. But if it produces briars and thorns, it's ultimately going to be destroyed. Jesus said in John 15, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. 
He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. Fruit is an evidence of salvation. Not works for salvation, but works evidence of salvation. Faith without works is dead, James tells us. Not faith and works, not faith or works, it's faith that works. When Christ comes into your life, he is going to bring about a transformation and change. You can look at your life, look back on who you were before you knew Christ, and you can probably go, you know what? I'm not perfect. I'm nowhere close to being perfect. I'm not where I'd want to be or God wants me to be, but I'm definitely different than that person. And that's evidence of what Christ has done in and through your life. Think about it this way. Think about a car battery. It works, doesn't it? It has power in, it, in, in the way that it's built in and designed. Yesterday, I had to change out the car battery in, in my car. The cold weather just did it in. It got it to its final days a little bit more, more quickly. So took out the old one, put in the new one, and guess what? It works. And Christ is God. He's our Savior And when our heart gets connected to him through faith, there's change, there's transformation, there's fruit that takes place in our lives. Well, verse 9 through verse 12 brings us to encouragement. Ah, just in time. (laughs) God's word is so balanced like this. Many times after a warning, there is encouragement. So there's a challenge to grow, there's a warning, and then there's encouragement. But beloved brethren, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. The author of Hebrews is saying, guys, I see something different in you. Not this sham conversion, not faith without fruit, but he's saying, I see in you the fruit of Jesus Christ. I see in you a a love for salvation, things that accompany salvation, even though I'm giving this warning to you. In church, Rocky Mountain Calvary, I see the same in you. I see a real hunger for Jesus Christ. I have opportunity, usually throughout a year, to teach at a few different churches, and there's something really special about this church. You love Jesus. You love his word. You love God's people. You're excited to be here and and, and be in worship. You love one another. You love the community. You have a heart for missions. You have a heart for your families. That's all evidence of Jesus Christ inside of you. And so the author of Hebrews, he brings that encouragement. God brings that encouragement in our lives as well. Verse 10 is, is a verse to underline. This verse will provide great encouragement for you in discouragement. For God is not unjust to forget your work and your labor of love, which you've sown towards his name, in that you've ministered to the saints and do minister. It would be unjust for God to not remember and reward service unto him. And what we're reading is this truth is God's not unjust. And he remembers, he sees your labor of love, and and that's what's given to us, labor of love and work. This means that you're pouring yourself out in service to him by ministering to believers. And he tells us, as you've ministered to the saints, which is Christians, those who are in Christ, and do minister. So when you do things for the body of Christ, you're ministering to Jesus Christ himself. What a powerful truth. And God sees those things, and he's going to reward those things. I want to take a few moments to expound on this throughout the totality of Scripture, because it's a theme. In Matthew 25, verse 40, 
Jesus says, and he answered them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you do it to one of these least of these, my brethren, you do it to me. Jesus has a heart for the least, the marginalized, the forgotten, the rejected, those that nobody else wants anything to do with. And as you have taken time to give them a smile, to give them a kind word, to go out of your way to talk with them, Jesus says, you've done that unto me. What you've done to the least of these, you've done to Jesus Christ. Mark 9, verse 41 For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. This is radical. You give a cup of cold water to someone in Jesus' name and you're going to be rewarded by by Jesus Christ. Moms, this is good news for you. There's a lot of cold water that has gone out to your children. Being a mom is a job that isn't recognized. There's not a lot of praise. There's not a lot of vacation days. Did you get a Christmas bonus for being a mom uh, this year? A lot of cups of cold water. This is not to mention grilled cheese. I mean, this is just water. And God takes the most common thing. He says, you give a couple cold water to, to someone in my name, and I'm going to reward you. He sees, and he rewards let alone those meals, let alone the laundry, let alone those long nights of getting up with with sick kids and sitting down to listen to a teenager and calling your adult child to, to see how they're doing. This is a lifestyle. This is a lifestyle to one another as believers. It's inside of our home. It's in our workplace. God sees as you just simply grab a cup of cold water for your coworker. Hey, would you like some coffee? Absolutely. Who wouldn't like a cup of coffee? Yeah, that'd be great. Fill it up, you know? And you take that time to to care for them. It's cold and you go out and you scrape their windows and you scrape your windows as well. You shovel your neighbor's driveway. I was so blessed. My older two daughters were out playing in the snow. I look out in the front and I'm like, well, they're not in the front yard anymore. They're not in the backyard. And I look down the hill and they're shoveling the neighbor's driveway, unasked, just because they wanted to. That's the kind of stuff God sees. And he's like, yeah, that blesses my heart, and you will receive a reward for that. Galatians 6, verse 7 through 10 says, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will also reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit everlasting life. A lot of times we only hear the negative We only hear, well, you will receive corruption. But what if you sow unto that good seed? Notice what happens. And let us not grow weary in while doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. You need to be encouraged this morning. God sees and he takes notice. No one else might see, no one else might appreciate you, and he's not looking you at condemnation. He's not looking you at, could you do more? He's rewarding for those cups of cold water. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Numbers chapter 7. We're going to look at Numbers chapter 7 to see the magnitude of this truth of how God sees the simplest of things that we do in his name. Numbers 7, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Number seven, verse one, and we're going to read all the way through verse 89. (laughs) 
Now I'm going to read the first few verses and summarize the rest. It's quite a chapter. Number 7, verse 1. Now, now it came to pass when Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle that he anointed it, consecrated it, and all of its furnishings, and the altar and all of its utensils. So he anointed them and consecrated them. Then the leaders of Israel, the heads of their fathers' houses, who were in the leaders of the tribes, and over those who were numbered, made an offering. And they brought their offering before the Lord, six covered carts, twelve oxen, and a cart from every two of the leaders, and for each one an oxen, and they presented themselves before the Lord. And as you go on to read the rest of the chapter, and I'll let you do that on your own time, is that you will find that each of the leaders from each of the tribes brought exactly the same gifts. This would have been a great opportunity for God to summarize if he wanted to save some space in Scripture. We would have probably done that. Okay, we're going to save time. Here were the leaders. They all gave the same gifts. And this chapter is maybe 14 verses instead of 89 verses. But God, in great detail, he lists the leader of the tribe. He lists everything that they gave. Then he lists the next leader and lists everything they gave, even though it was the exact same thing as the guy before him. Why? Because he sees and he appreciates it. It means something to God. Church, God sees. It means something to him. Be encouraged. Maybe as we begin this new year, discouragement has set in over your soul. I think this is a perfect opportunity for us because sometimes there's the post-holiday blues. This is the first weekend after New Year's and we're feeling a bit of despair set in and we're like, I, I just don't know if I have it in me for a whole nother year. You know, I, I've been serving my spouse for a lot of years now and they just don't seem to appreciate it and there's no change. I'm just, I'm going to back off a little bit. I've been teaching those two-year-olds for 15 years at Rocky Mountain Calvary. Some of those two-year-olds are growing up and they're going to be married and they're going to be having their own kids. It's somebody else's turn to do that. I am not doing that anymore. And then you read this, God sees. He sees and he rewards. I don't understand God's economy fully when it comes to heaven, but I do trust the words of Jesus and he often taught us to lay up treasures in heaven. You're going to care about your reward in heaven. Why? Because we do find in the New Testament of laying our crowns down before the Lord. You're going to want treasure to lay down at the feet of Jesus. It's not going to be a me thing. It's not going to be a selfish thing, but it's going to be something that we care a whole lot about. We're going to go in our, in our lives and go, oh, I'm so glad that I didn't give up. I'm so glad that I didn't lose heart. Let's look on into verse 11. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of the hope until the end. So we have full assurance of hope until the end. God's good. He is good. He does good. It's impossible for him to lie. The end of chapter 6 that we're going to study next week is going to develop this theme of hope. But since we have the full assurance of hope till the end, then let's be diligent. Don't give up on the things that God has called us to do and, and asked us to do. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 40, 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Keep serving, 
keep laboring with full assurance of hope until the end. We have a cultural understanding of retirement, and then I think there's a biblical understanding of retirement. The cultural understanding of retirement is you work, 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 so that you can do whatever that you want the last 15, 20 years of your life. And I think the biblical understanding of retirement is work, 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 and man, praise the Lord if you no longer have to go to work to earn a paycheck, but you never stop laboring in the kingdom of God. There's no place in scripture that you ever want to get to that point where you say, I wake up just to do whatever I want. Jesus taught us we wake up every day to do whatever he wants. And you're going to find the most satisfaction in serving him, not just living for our own selfish means. A pastor named John Piper, he gives this message and he calls it that God's not going to be impressed with my seashell collection. And what he means by that is he's now retired. He's retired from pastoring. He had a a long history of faithfully serving as a pastor. And it was time for him to resign in that sense, but he didn't stop serving the Lord. And so in this message, he talks about what if I took the last 15, 20 years of my life and all I did was enjoy time on the beach collecting really nice seashells. Then I die and go home to be with the Lord and go, God, aren't you impressed with my seashell collection? Something's missing there, isn't it? That's not ultimately what we want to go before the Lord. We're going to get to heaven and we're going to go, wow, that was kind of foolish to collect all these seashells. Look at the amazing things that are in heaven. And don't get me wrong, man, enjoy the Lord. Enjoy some time on the beach, but don't lose that perspective of this isn't me time. This is kingdom time. We need to determine now in our lives, no matter what our age is, as long as I have breath, I'm going to serve the Lord. I'm going to always abound in the work of the Lord. I want my life to be used up and spent fully for the kingdom of God. And that's applicable no matter what age you are. If you're in that retirement season of your life, if you're 40, if you're 20, if you're, if you're 15, we daily face that choice of saying, am I going to enter into the things that God has for me? Am I going to be diligent so with full assurance to the end? Or am I going to serve myself? In verse 12 that you do not become sluggish, but you imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. In the old King James, the word sluggish is translated slothful. And to me, that's more colorful with language, isn't it? Don't become slothful. Don't get to that place where discouragement sets in. And now we can't get up to be able to serve in the way that God would intend. So as we're diligently serving it protects us for becoming slothful. So be diligent so that you don't become slothful. You're not always going to feel like it. I don't always feel like it. But then when we make that choice to serve others, even when we don't feel like it, a lot of times the emotions come along. You wake up and feel selfish and feel slothful. Say, you know what? I'm going to be a blessing to my family today. I got a choice. I can either be a blessing to those I'm around or I can be a curse. I'm single and I can be a blessing to my roommates. I can be a blessing to those I'm around or I can be a a real bummer. I can be a life giver with my tongue or I can be a death dealer. We make that decision. I'm going to be a life giver today. And then all of a sudden you're like, this feels great. This this was a good choice of me to put myself aside. And that diligence a lot of times then fights off the sluggishness that, that takes place. I don't know about you, but I don't always walk in 
every service and just feel like singing to, to the Lord. Sometimes I do. You know, some Sunday mornings I get in here and I'm just, I can't wait to get in and start singing to the Lord. But other times it's a real choice of the will. It's a sacrifice of praise. But I'm glad when I do. I'm glad when I enter in and when I sing because it then fights off that sluggishness and that slothfulness. The last thing that we're left with in verse 12 is to imitate those who through faith and patience have inherited the promise. You're going to imitate somebody. Someone's going to be a hero to you. So think about someone that you know in life that's finishing strong and they're finishing well and they're inheriting the promise and say, you know, I want to live my life like that. Think of scripture of those who are examples that we can follow. And how did they inherit the promises? Through continued trust in God and through patience, through endurance, through continuing on through hard times. The fruit doesn't come overnight. It was several years ago, many years ago now, and I was going through a really tough season as a, as a pastor. I didn't realize it, but sluggishness, slothfulness had set in for me as a pastor, and it was a result of the discouragement. And I had a, a friend of mine that I didn't know at the time. He sent me an email. as another pastor in town. He says, you know, God just really put you on my heart, and I've got some things that I'd like to share with you. And as soon as anybody does that, the warning lights kind of go off because we've all had really weird experiences. I never talked to this guy in my life. I knew who he was in the, in the, in the community because sometimes people get together with you in that context and they're like, God really detests your shoes. He hates your shoes. And you're like, really? He hates my shoes. Interesting. Thanks so much for sharing. Call you back later, right? So I'm thinking, is this going to be something kind of weird? And we sat down at Starbucks across the street, had a really good talk and conversation. And then towards the end, he says, you know, God's really put on my heart for you, Hebrews 6, verse 12. Why don't you just go read it and pray about it? And that's all he said. And so I get back to, to the church here and I, re, you know, look at Hebrews 6, verse 12. And I go, oh, Lord, that's, that's perfect. That's exactly what I needed to hear. I've become sluggish. I've become slothful. I've become to this place where discouragement has gotten the best of me. And for the next six months, this was my target verse. This is the verse that I put on my computer screen that I wrote in two or three places. And when I was feeling those emotions of discouragement and despair, no, I'm not going to let that get the best of me. I'm going to try to imitate those who have inherited the promises. I'm going to continue to trust God. I'm going to continue in endurance. And guess what? The Lord was faithful to work those things off and work those emotions off. And maybe that's where you find yourself this morning. Remember when the fact that God sees it was enough? Remember when serving your spouse simply because God sees was enough? And now you're expecting something? If you're single, remember your purity unto the Lord at one point, it was enough simply because God sees? It didn't matter if there was any carrot that, that came with it. Remember at your job when you got up and you served unto the Lord? Whether you got a promotion, whether you got recognized, whether anyone saw. Remember when we served in the church simply because we're so amazed that God had forgiven us and it was enough that he sees? That's what we got to get back to. That's a place that we've got to return to. We'll go, Lord, I'm so thankful that you do see 
and I want to serve you faithfully. I want to pour my life out unto you. So this chapter, it's provided us three things. It's provided us a challenge to move on to maturity. It's provided a warning. Don't trust in your own works. Continue to trust in the finished work of Christ. And then it provides encouragement. God sees and he remembers your labor of love. What is it that the Holy Spirit has for you from this section of scripture? Allow him to speak that to you and apply it to your life. Would you stand with me and let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We, we thank you for your truth. God, we do desire to grow in our lives wherever we're at. Lord, that we could see growth take place this month and this year. Lord, we want to heed this warning of how important it is to continue to trust in you and not to trust in our own works. And we receive this encouragement. We thank you that you see and you reward Lord, you see the smallest act of service that's done in your name. Would you bring application to our hearts and our lives? In Jesus' name, amen.